Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to The 34. Toward the day when two peoples divided by generations by conflict are bound now by peace. Finally, the time is approaching when there will be safety in Israel's house, when the Palestinian people will write their own destiny, when the clash of arms will be banished from God's holy land. Two years ago, on another brilliant September day here at the White House, two men reached across one of history's widest chasms with a simple handshake. That moment is etched forever in our memory. As courageous leaders step beyond the bounds of convention, they build for their peoples a new world of hope and peace. Now, as this new chapter begins, the enemies of peace have fought the tide of history with terror and violence. We grieve for their victims, and we renew our vow to redeem the sacrifice of those victims. We will defeat those who resort to terror, and we revere the determination of these leaders who chose peace, who rejected the old habits of hatred and revenge. Because they broke so bravely with the past, the bridges have multiplied, bridges of communication, of commerce, of understanding. Today, the landscape changes and the chasm narrows. All those who doubt the spirit of peace should remember this day and this extraordinary array of leaders who have joined together to bring a new era of hope to the Middle East. The United States is proud to stand with all of them. Much remains to be done, but we will continue to walk each step of the way with those who work and risk for peace. We will press forward with our efforts until the circle of peace is closed, a circle which must include Syria and Lebanon, if peace is to be complete. We will not rest until Muslims and Jews can turn their backs to pray without any fear, until all the region's children can grow up untouched by conflict, until the shadow of violence is lifted from the land of light and gold. Thank you very much. The city of Jerusalem is a city rich in historical significance and home to all of the Judaic religions. In the 1990s, the Palestinians were promised during the Oslo Peace Accords that the status of Jerusalem would be attached to a negotiation that would ultimately grant them sovereignty. For this reason, James Baker at that time postponed finalization on East Jerusalem, the settlements in Palestinian territory, and refugee status, with the belief a final status would be negotiated in two years' time, or in the very least, after the formal start of the interim phase ending in May of 1999. Yesterday, Trump decided to declare Jerusalem the capital of Israel. Our guest today is Dr. James Zogby, who is the founder of the Arab American Institute. He is a fellow at the Sanders Institute, as well as managing director of Zogby Research. He is also a Bernie Sanders appointee on the DNC's Unity and Reform Commission. So welcome. Welcome, Dr. Zogby. Um, Thank I first you. Wanted Thank to, you, Tina. Yeah, I first wanted to have a discussion 
on the historical context surrounding the Jerusalem situation. I think a lot of Americans aren't familiar with what has led us to this place and why this tentative situation could really undermine the peace process. You have Judaism, you have Christianity, and you have Muslims that all consider this area uh, very special and holy, and they all have a vested interest in keeping this uh, free and open to all all divisions. Uh, what what is the historic con- context behind this, and what would you, what do you see as a map problem with the current situation? Well, let's start uh, in, in 1948. The when the UN partitioned uh, Palestine, uh, they left Jerusalem as an international city under international control, precisely because there were heightened sensitivities uh, surrounding the city uh, that affected three different religious communities. Uh, In the 48 war, Israel occupied West Jerusalem and declared it its capital um, and uh, insisted that other countries recognize it as the capital. Uh, in 19, and, and none did, incidentally. I think El Salvador did, uh, Costa Rica did, uh, but that was it, and then finally they withdrew, and so Jerusalem has not been recognized as the capital by any country in the world, precisely because it was supposed to be preserved as an international city. In 67, they occupied east the eastern side of the city, which is largely the old city and a few uh, surrounding neighborhoods, uh, but they also then added 28 Palestinian villages and about 8 to 10% of the West Bank and drew these rather artificial borders, which they then declared East Jerusalem, and annexed it uh, to the western side and called it Greater Jerusalem. Um, the problem is that, um, number one, it's illegal to, to annex and, and seize and, and then settle your population in territory occupied in time of war. Secondly, by closing then Jerusalem off from the west of the West Bank, they severed the city from the million-plus people, now two million-plus people, who lived in the West Bank, meaning that it being the largest city, it was the metropolitan area. It was where the universities were. It was where the hospitals were. It was where people went for to visit social workers or for social recreation or for cultural events. And it was also the headquarters where political institutions were. When Israel severed it off, first by checkpoints, uh, limiting Palestinians' access and egress from the city, uh, they made it impossible for that city to exist in that way. So I've compared it to Washington, D.C., being severed from Virginia and, and Maryland, putting a wall around it, and then saying to people in Maryland, Virginia, you can't come in anymore. Uh, what would it do to Maryland, Virginia, denied access to the city? But also, what would it do in the city to the people here who lose jobs, who lose the economy from the, the, the commerce of people coming into the city? So when, when Palestinians get upset about Jerusalem, it is partially the sacred aspect of it. Uh, people from Bethlehem can't travel to Jerusalem to pray in the Church of the Sepulchre or to pray at the Al-Aqsa Mosque. The wall severs them from that. At the same time, there is the economic, social, cultural, and political. It was taking this city, uh, literally cutting the heart out of the West Bank, and then imprisoning the people in the city so that they lost the capacity to economically grow, develop, and continue relations with people outside. That's what 
the reality that Trump completely ignores and has no consciousness of it all. I tweeted today a uh, a letter from the mm-hmm. patriarchs uh, in the in the West Bank and in Jerusalem, uh, heads mm-hmm. of all the major Christian churches, saying, "Please don't do this." But I, I dare say he has no clue that there's an indigenous right. Christian community there. I dare say most Americans don't. We just did a poll. We asked people um, across the country, Americans, about Jerusalem. 52% had no idea. Wow. Uh, a majority, a plurality rather, I should say, said keep it in Tel Aviv. Don't move oh. the embassy to Jerusalem. Yeah. But 52% had no idea what to say or do about it. it. It simply is an issue that most Americans are, are unaware of. And unaware of the fact that there's a Christian community there um, in, in, mm-hmm. in, in Palestine. Well, they're unaware that there's any such thing as a Christian Palestinian, or for that matter, let's be honest, a Jewish Arab. So in their minds, yeah. things have been so well yeah. partitioned you by know, the media. In, in 1940, in 19, I'm sorry, 79, I brought a, a Palestinian priest from the Galilee to uh, Washington. I uh, was running the Palestine Human Rights Campaign, and I organized a breakfast for him with uh reporters who covered religion for the Post, the Times, the AP, the, back then the UPI, etc. Um, and the first question he got was from the AP reporter who said, now, you say you're an Arab and a Christian. How, how difficult is that for you uh, to reconcile that? And, 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 and as a follow-up, exactly when did your people convert? And he looked at him and he said, about 2,000 years ago. And um, and we've been living there ever since. Uh, he said, and if my people had known that when they did hear the word of Jesus and converted, that they would be dispossessing themselves from their land, uh, mm-hmm. he said they probably would have stayed Jews. Uh, th- that sense of complete ignorance is 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 both it's baffling and, yeah. and and quite distressing. It is distressing, and I think a lot of it's driven by uh, the lobbies and the moneyed interests. I don't think they have a vested interest in Americans not being clear on what's going on in the Middle East and and et cetera. Uh, You mentioned uh, the the entire peace process, and I know that in the 1990s, uh, my understanding is the Palestinians were promised that the status of Jerusalem would be part of a negotiation that would ultimately give them sovereignty of their own country. And there was a letter that uh, James Baker had written mm-hmm. to confirm this. Mm-hmm. So my question is this, if that's the case, this clearly undermines the peace process, although it's been derailed for many years now, I feel like this is the final nail in the coffin. So what I, in I your say has is. changed? Okay. I dare say it, it is the final nail in the coffin. And, and sure, Jim Baker uh, laid out a series of principles, um, which Oslo built upon, but which have been... Uh, being chipped away at ever since, including during the Clinton administration, the Y agreement, really made a a mess of the West Bank. Uh, Clinton was so eager to get Netanyahu's signature on anything. This was the guy who said he'd never sign an agreement with the Palestinians, uh, forcing him to sign an agreement, but in the process, so compromised the principles of, of what had up till that point been uh, the peace process that it, it, one could effectively say it died. Um, it died at the Y plantation when when Clinton uh, achieved what he thought was a breakthrough, but actually was an enormous setback. And then from then on, it's been it's been a down a downward slide. And um, I, I, you know, look, I'm, I'm a Democrat, uh, but 
would that James Baker had uh, had stayed around uh, a lot longer. He he actually had he was the last Secretary of State who really understood the role of America, the role of politics, the role of pressure uh, in in pursuing diplomatic objectives, and he he had uh, you know during his time in office made a huge impact on the Middle East, but but uh, we're we're not there anymore. We're 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 in a very different place in America. No, we are definitely not there. I, the the conversation. I think part of the problem is the conversation has shifted so far to the right, not only in the United States but in Israel as well. You look at the parties that are now dominating the political spectrum, whether it's Likud or Home Party, which is even more farther to the right. They view leftists with as much distaste as they view the Palestinian population. So there's there's this insular thing that's going on within the country where you know, there's just no room for discussion anymore, which I think has birthed a lot of the pushback that we're seeing now. Let me stop for a minute. The, I think the problem is, is that when you have people under stress for a long period of time um, and the conditions of stress are as they are, uh, both affecting Palestinians and Israelis, um, you have, it, it creates a certain... Um, it has an impact on the psyche of, of people. Mm-hmm. I call it right. there are two pathologies playing out in the Middle East. Uh, you have the uh, abandoned child and abused child syndrome on the Palestinian side, and you have the spoiled child syndrome on the Israeli side. They have come to believe that whatever they do, there are no sanctions. They operate with impunity. Uh, they murder a Palestinian in cold blood, um, and there's no punishment for it. Uh, settlers uproot uh, fields of, uh, of, of, of olive trees uh, and steal the crop. Uh, there's no sanction. There's no punishment for it. They're told by the U.S. and the world community, do not build settlements, and they build them. Nothing happens. They're told by the International Criminal Court, no wall should be built. And not only the wall is built, but the wall is built inside Palestinian territory. And so it, you know, in America... You, you, you plant a bush on somebody, your neighbor's lawn, and a war breaks out. This wall goes two, three miles into the West Bank, and the International Criminal Court said it should not exist. You should take it down. Israel doesn't do it. So there's this sense of absolute impunity, which has pushed their politics to the right and made them feel that anyone who criticizes them is a traitor. Um, and so Netanyahu feels, 100%. I get rewarded. I do bad things, I get rewarded. So why not be bad all the time? On the other hand, on the Palestinian side, there's no reward. It's all punishment. Yeah. Israelis get the, the, the pledges and the promises. The Palestinians get punished. And so there, there then sits in this uh, abused child syndrome where anything I do is going to get punishment. So why do anything good at all? It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. I think that, you know... Because there's been no adult supervision from from the U.S. or the U.N. or from the Europeans or whoever, there's been no one to sort of take this and hold it in check and and correct this imbalance. Um, I I frankly see the situation getting worse, not better. Israelis more emboldened, Palestinians more embittered, and uh, and the outcome is, uh, is, is, is a disaster. I co-sign on that 100%. I, um, I worry because there's this connection that has constantly constantly been made that if you criticize the Israeli government in any way, shape, or form, 
you're being anti-Semitic. And this is simply not true. And indeed, I'm going to argue, and I know that this is not necessarily a popular opinion, uh, but my argument is that this, this thing right here is what's driving some very genuine and real anti-Semitism in the, in, the, in the world because they see the actions of the Israeli um, or the illegal settlers in Hebron, for example. You know, you've got situations where children have been intentionally run over, Palestinian children, and there's no recourse, there's no justice, there's no discussion. These folks are just, you're right, they're asked with impunity. And people see these actions and they see that there's no justice being served and they, they go to this horrible place where all Jews are horrible people. And it's a very dangerous situation. And I, uh, I really, really would like to implore a lot of the right wing in Israel to really think about that for a second. Because they're not making it a more secure environment. They're making it less so, in my opinion. Um, so, which brings me to my next question. What benefit, if any, is there to moving the capital to Jerusalem from Tel Aviv. I think I know what that is, but I would love to hear your opinion on that. Well, the idiocy of, of, of the president in, in claiming that it would advance U.S. interests and it will advance the cause of peace is just beyond belief. Um, he can't be so dumb as to really believe that. Um, obviously, the speech was written for him by somebody else who thought that he'd be so dumb as to read it straight out and not question it. Um, it will set back U.S. interests. I mean, here we are, the only country in the world uh, now recognizing Jerusalem as the capital. Uh, where The Europeans have asked us not to do it, the EU statement yesterday. The French and the Germans individually sent very strong statements. The Pope made a, a, a very deep personal appeal. The Organization of Islamic Countries um, issued a strong denunciation, as did the Arab League. I mean, frankly, uh, it, it sets America back. It also is going to make it absolutely impossible, despite the fact the president says um, he's provoking violence and then telling people, now I want you to stay nonviolent. Well, you know, he's going to get a big, um, I won't tell you, it, it, it will not be received well when you poke a finger in the open wound of an entire nation that reverberates throughout the entire Arab and Muslim world and you put salt in that wound, it's going to have a blowback. And, uh, and so I, I don't quite understand, is there an upside? There's no upside. Uh, there's okay. an upside maybe that Sheldon Adelson will be very happy and put in <laughs> another $25 million. No, I mean, I, you know, I think that that's the case. I and think you're right. Chuck Schumer, who also supported it. Look, I'm, right. I, I go back to Chuck Schumer in 1988 when I introduced the Jackson Plank at the Democratic Convention, and we had rules that we would not insult each other. We would just make statements from the podium of the convention. I did. And he got up and broke the rules and said, the, the speaker before me was dishonest, deplorable, disgusting, whatever. People started booing him from the floor. And the booing got so much that uh, uh, Governor Blanchard from Michigan at the time, who was the chair of the convention, had to come out a couple of times and say, uh, to calm the audience down to stop him from doing it. But he was disgraceful. When it was all over, we were in the back, uh, backstage at the convention, and Schumer comes over to me and puts his arm around me, and he says, Zogby, you, you have no idea how much money you probably helped me raise in Brooklyn tonight. Um, and that is I so thought, gross. I, exactly, and I thought, that is Chuck Schumer to a T. So he, he now gets to go um, 
and and do a you know he's leaked to the press that he advised the president to do this, claiming yeah. credit for it. Why? Because it's going to help him raise money uh, uh, from from donors too. It is disgraceful. And it is an absolute abomination. American politics at its worst. And I, so you got Trump agree. doing it and Schumer claiming credit for it, both for the same purpose: domestic politics, playing with fire for domestic politics. It's really irresponsible. It is really irresponsible. And the interesting thing about the Schumer, I was going to ask you about this, so I'm glad you brought it up. The interesting thing to me about Schumer is he's literally, as a Democrat, he's absolutely taking money from right-wing causes like Shelley Adelson. I mean, you had a situation where Shelley Adelson and Haim Saban were sharing the same stage and agreeing with each other on the situation. So at some point, we need to have a reckoning uh, as to whether we are truly progressives and we fully believe in humanitarian values and human rights and uh, egalitarian policy and democracy, or we don't. Because the cognitive dissonance that's occurring right now with this faction of the Democratic Party is is becoming uh, more untenable by the day, in my opinion. I think you have a lot of liberal Jews here in the United States that aren't okay with the situation. They've seen it deteriorate to a point where it's just not acceptable. And they see many of our political leaders who they've given money to and supported through the years just kind of signing off on it because of APAC and not giving any pushback to the situation when pushback is what's really needed. No government is Teflon coated uh, in, from criticism when they're behaving badly. Badly, And if you're getting both, uh, both parties to co-sign on the bad behavior, it's, it's a very bad situation that's dangerous on, on many levels. Um, so that brings me to my next question. You know, BDS has been a movement that was started by um, a group of people, not a singular person, but many of those folks did include liberal Jews as well as Palestinians. And they saw this as a, a way to maybe push the conversation in a direction that dealt with the fact that Palestinians are prosecuted under military law, not civil court. Um, that there's really, it's an apartheid state where if you want to get from Hebron into Israel, it's going to take you six hours to get through the checkpoints, if that's even possible. Or if somebody needs to get to a hospital and an ambulance needs to come across, they're not, there's no guarantee that that's going to happen. People are dying. So there's a very, uh, very bad situations that have been coming up that need to be dealt with. And I think they saw BDS as a way to, to make that as a political push that would, would change the conversation. But in reaction to that, we now have laws coming up that are anti-BDS laws. In my opinion, this is a violation of the First Amendment in this country. And I want to understand why it is that our politicians think that it's okay to subjugate our First Amendment rights to a foreign government's want, meaning APAC's want. Do, do you see this as a problem as well? What's your opinion on that? Um, absolutely. Uh, look, uh, number one, I'm a supporter of BDS. I think that we should all encourage Palestinians to pursue a nonviolent approach to um, uh, to liberate their 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 lands and and regain their freedom. Um, those who oppose BDS um, are in effect saying to Palestinians, "Just sit there and be quiet, boy. Don't do anything. You have no right to even protest." BDS is pr pretty much what Gandhi did. Uh, preaching self-reliance and telling Palestinians in the territories, don't buy Israeli products. Uh, let's produce our own products. Um, and, uh, and at the same time saying to people abroad, if you support us, then don't purchase products made in the West Bank um, under, in Israeli settlements and don't, um, and don't support companies 
that are contributing to building the settlements. Um, and that's a perfectly logical, moral, and I think absolutely legal uh, activity. Um, obviously, Israel is frightened by it. Um, and, uh, and they're frightened because it, uh, it cuts into the margin of profit of several businesses. I know when I was working with Vice President Gore in the 90s in Builders for Peace, it was very difficult to um, get the Israelis to agree, which they still haven't done, but to get them to agree on paper that products made by Palestinians in the West Bank should be listed as made in the, in the West Bank or in Palestinian territories instead of being exported by an Israeli middleman and then called made in Israel. There was a time, just for an example, uh, Victoria's Secret uh, produced uh, product in the West Bank. 98% of what they produced was produced in the West Bank by Palestinian seamstresses uh, and all had a made in Israel label on it. And the Palestinians got dirt for producing it, and the Israeli middlemen who exported it made the profits. We had to try to work to, to get that reversed. Um, a lot of those companies have since gone to Jordan um, uh, because of the free trade agreement, because Palestinians, while they got the labeling right, they were still unable to export because Israel doesn't allow them access to the ports to import or export product. So it's it's a it's a mess of a situation, and and basically what BDS says is uh, help us correct this this injustice this injustice of an occupation this injustice of settlement construction this injustice of tying our hands and not allowing us to have a free economy. And many people have responded to now say as Congress has said, as 20-something states have said, that if you support BDS, we will punish you. Uh, people in Denniston, Texas, were asked to sign a statement that they didn't support BDS before they were allowed to get FEMA funds. A woman in Kansas who was a math teacher applied for a grant from the state uh, and was told she had to sign a statement, one of the articles of which was that she didn't support BDS she did support BDS and was refused the, 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 the grant. The ACLU has taken up both cases. These are just outrages. And it is outrageous. in America, you should not allow that kind of violation of free speech to occur. But at the same time, like I said, we should be supporting Palestinians in a nonviolent way and, exactly. and saying to them, you do have rights. Uh, we can't say to you, you know, just take it. We're not going to we're we're not going to support you if you use violence. We're not going to support you if you use nonviolence. Um, it's it's just uh, it's just uh, disgraceful. It is disgraceful. It, it is a nonviolent form of protest, and we and I agree with you one hundred percent. We should co-sign on to that because you know my understanding too is a lot of these illegal settlements with the worker situation worker situation in Palestine is that they're not subject to Israeli uh, laws as far as protections for workers, et cetera, et cetera. So this also contributes to sort of incentivizing these companies to go into the West Bank, set up shop, and play, you know, 50% of the wages that they mm -hmm. would pay an Israeli citizen. So it's not good for the Israeli citizens either. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's just bad all around. It's a bad idea. Uh, you know, and the other thing that Trump is talking about doing is moving the U.S. embassy into Jerusalem, which is the second part of this frightful mess. Uh, do you? I saw a report. I think it was maybe on Mondo Vice this morning. I'm not. Can't remember. That said that they he was maybe thinking about re-upping the keeping it in Tel Aviv for six months and then moving it as opposed to today. Uh, do you have any news on that or an opinion you want to share? 
what he's saying is that um, he will recognize it. That's enough damage. Move the embassy. Uh, he, he, he may not re-sign the waiver in six months, but he's authorizing the State Department now to begin the process of hiring architects and designing it and stuff. He said it'll take three to four years. It'll actually take longer than that. But, uh, but the damage is done with the recognition. Right. That makes sense to me. And also, I would imagine this, this does more damage for us with, with regards to the European Union and all of these other countries that actually do have embassies there in Tel Aviv. Why would we want to isolate ourselves from that community? I don't, again, I don't see any benefits here. Yeah, I, look, there is no upside to this. There's no upside. This, I don't this, agree. This was, um, while not an act of war, uh, it amounts to an act of war, and it's just a disgrace. I agree. So my next question has to do with uh, another interesting thing that's happening here in the United States in regards to this. I'm seeing a lot of um, fundamentalism, like evangelicals, committed to what Trump's doing. And I feel like in a lot of ways, because he's uh, Netanyahu's lost a lot of the liberal Jewish support in the United States, he's now embracing um, these other groups that are fully vested in seeing Palestine disappear because it fulfills their uh, religious belief of the second coming, etc. Do you, do you think that that maybe played a role in this, getting pressure from those groups? I think that absolutely did play a role in it. And I think that what people need to have a clear sense of what this evangelical thread um, is is all about. I mean, they um, they want to. Okay, let me let me let me start from the from the beginning here. It's 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 called predense dispensational millenarianism. What they believe is that the Old Testament wasn't just the Old Testament, but it actually was the prophetic book that laid out what would occur in the future, not just what had happened in the past. So basically, they want to replay the scenario of the Old Testament in the modern day, the ingathering of the Jews, etc., uh, as the precursor to the final days. So the, 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 the theology is weird and has been declared heretical by most of the major Christian denominations. First, the ingathering of the Jews, then the conversion of the Jews to Christianity, then the final battle, at which point the battle, the, those the forces who are allied with the Jews and those who are not will have this final battle that will result in the end of the world, at which point Jesus returns with the select, the chosen, the 144,000 uh, who are to be chosen, and they will rule in a perfect world. Well, I frankly want a president who plays to people who don't want to bring about the end of the world. I would actually want a president who want to avoid war. <laughs> And not and not see. I mean, this is an ideology that is so wacky that I don't understand why we've even allowed us ourselves to to forget it. Why the Israelis court it? And actually, I remember back in the late '60s, as late as that, uh, reading in Jewish newspapers, people asking the question: Do we really want to work with these people? They're nuts. They want us all to convert, and and in the end, all to die. Uh, in order to bring Jesus back. This is a wacky 
school of thought. And I'm sorry, I mean, I know there are probably people who are going to listen to this and say, how dare he call us wacky? I'm sorry, but anybody that wants to blow up the whole world uh, is, in my mind, not operating on on all their cylinders. And I I just can't, uh, I, I certainly can't see it where when we have presidential candidates who believed in that, or in this case, a president who I don't think believes in it, but certainly courts them and cultivates the, their support. Um, Indeed. You know, Mike Huckabee believes this stuff. Pat Robertson believed this stuff. And it's, I think it's dangerous. This is an ideology that is dangerous to the world. It's dangerous to our safety and security. It's as dangerous as ISIS. Uh, I don't disagree. Uh, you know, and it's even odder to me to see somebody like Netanyahu invite them you know, to Israel to view things, come here and fundraise with these groups. They made a pact with right. the devil. The Israelis made a pact with the devil. I they didn't agree. give a damn. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, they said, these guys, like I was saying, there was that debate back in the late 60s. It ended. They said, you know what? We're strong enough to resist these people, but let's take them for what we can. They're our support base in the Republican Party. And they are. They are, I, they are today more powerful than APEC in shaping the direction of American politics. That's frightful. Um, you know, speaking of pacts with the devil, I think there's even a bigger pact with the devil that I'm witnessing, and that is uh, them making a pact with the alt-right. And as crazy as that sounds, that's absolutely what's happening. And, you know, a couple of weeks ago, you had Netanyahu's son, Yair, uh, post, make this post about Richard Spencer and Peppy the Frog, embracing that. I see conversations all the time on Twitter where you have alt-right folks defending Israel, defending defending what they're doing based on this idea of fascism or nationalism. But what I find really perverse and dangerous about that situation is that these folks still hate, they still hate Jews. There's no two ways around it. They are very much neo-Nazi anti-Jews. And I don't understand why Netanyahu and a lot of these hard-right Zionists Still comfortable making a bed with them based on one thing only, Muslim hatred. So to me, this is, you know, the, I, the, I, I the enemy of your enemy is not your friend. I wrote a piece back in the Nixon era uh, called Anti-Semites for Israel. Um, and it's still the same thing. The They make their decision on Israel. I would say like the Christian evangelical. Um, mm-hmm. based on a, 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 a larger scheme of things where they see this, this, this people as useful to fight a war that they want to fight. Um, in this <clears throat> case, it's, it's Israel beating back the Muslims. In right. the evangelical thing, it's, uh, it's Israel helping to bring on the end of days. Um, but again, I mean, you have the, the situation where the the Israelis and their supporters make a, a a strategic decision. It's better to work with these guys, um, and because they're going to support us, and you know we'll you know we'll overcome whatever they have to. It's it's a pact with the devil. Bottom. It line. is a pact with the devil. I don't see how they can convince themselves that they're going to overcome the what Richard Spencer thinks that Jews should be. You know completely eliminated in some aspects. I know he's, he's pretty Nazi-ish in his viewpoints, and I know he's gone after a lot of uh, Jews publicly in his hometown there in Montana. He was harassing a family. I, I don't understand how, at the end of the day, the hard-right Zionists are saying to themselves, we'll find a way to reconcile this. It's absolutely uh, dangerous. It's 
not something that ends well for anybody. And I think they really need to come to their senses because it's, in my opinion, it's very perverse. And I don't, I don't, I don't, to me, it scares, it scares me because I think this is just a pack of the devil, like you said. Uh, having said that, uh, so we talked about Schumer a little bit. Do you think there was some sort of closed door negotiation that happened between Schumer and Trump on the situation that may be related to some of these other issues like tax reform? Or do you think this was just them, you know, both fully agreeing on the situation was that simple? Oh, I think it was probably none of the above. I think it was Chuck okay. Schumer just blowing smoke, trying to raise money. Oh. It. Okay. I mean, yeah, n- nothing, nothing any more, um, uh, you know, nothing any more serious than that. As Chuck okay. Schumer saying, he did something that he had nothing to do with at all. And uh, okay, that that makes sense yeah. to me. I mean, he does seem to be pretty greedy in that department. Yeah. I, and I was happy to see that uh, Senator Sanders came out yesterday and made a statement on Twitter in regards to this and how he felt very strongly that this would upend the peace process. Uh, does he plan on, do you know, are you aware of him, is he planning on going further into this conversation or trying I to advocate for any side? Okay, I, I didn't know. Maybe you talked to him since then. Okay, yeah. I'm glad to see that he actually did that. So let's talk a little bit also about the Unity and Reform Commission. You folks are having your final meeting this weekend, right, in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. Uh, behind, is this, this one's open to the public as well? Open. or Okay, so let's encourage folks that are in the vicinity that have an interest in, in this uh, situation to come and view and listen to what's being said. I think that's important. Um, I know that this past week, the Democrats had sent out a survey in regards to uh, what was happening, and they asked questions like, how, you do, how do you feel about caucuses? How do you feel about primaries, superdelegates? Do you think that they are uh, listening to what they're getting back in the survey at all, or is that just sort of something they're doing to do it? Oh, I think that they're, they're, uh, they're paying attention to, to nothing. I mean, that thing, again, was a, a, just a device to make people feel that they're being included. Uh, the poll actually was, uh, if, as, I re- as I recall, looking at it, was kind of stacked in terms of where the options were. Um, right. And, uh, and on the issues that were in the, 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 the bucket that I was dealing with, party reform, they weren't even included in the, in the discussion at all. Um, That's correct. You could have, there was a little bottom section that you could discuss that in, which I did when yeah. I filled out my survey, I brought up, you know, the situation yeah. with lobbyists, et cetera. But no, it wasn't one of the questions. And it should have had I, nothing to do with it anyway. Look, we were the Unity Reform Commission. Mm-hmm. If anyone was to have sent it out, we were to have sent it out. We didn't even know it was going out. It went out That's as odd. a fundraising device, fill this out and then donate. Um, and we're, I, I will bet you the results never even got tallied. Or if they got tallied, they never came back to the Unity Reform Commission because we never saw them. So what would be the point of, of including mm. a, a, a tool right. to help our deliberations when we never saw it? That's very disappointing. Yeah. I, so, <laughs> There's a whole lot that's disappointing about this. I agree. Uh, I, so now after you have your meeting this weekend, you're going to go into deliberations with the group. I know you can't really talk about results at this point because we're not at that stage. But do you have any uh, sort of positive feelings about how this process has gone on through the years so far? No. No. No, okay. I'm actually so, I'm actually not um, 
I'm actually not happy with uh, with where we are. And uh, I think that some progress was made in uh, superdelegates and some progress was made uh, uh, on the area of, of opening primaries. Um, but too much of it is being left to the Rules and Bylaws Committee to find right. the resolve, uh, right. which includes none of the Sanders people on it, incidentally. Um, right. And yet includes mostly Hillary people. So I don't know where we get gains there. And then secondly, um, uh, the issues on party reform, I see very little progress made there at all. We've still got a big fight ahead of us. I I agree. You know, I've had some conversations uh, in the last couple of weeks with folks um, within the DNC, and I feel that they're not really hearing the problem. They don't see the problem with having lobbyists sitting in leadership positions. They think this is perfectly okay if they call them consultants. They don't feel that people are angry and leaving the party for reasons related to this. I mean, I think the, what, um, did you guys do a poll on this? I think the latest data shows that independents are about 45%. It, it's oh. in the 40% range, yeah. I mean, and what's interesting is that you don't always know that because one of the ways political polling gets done is through weights because mm -hmm. right. we no longer have the ability to totally randomly sample the populace. And, mm -hmm. and people apply weights based on the uh, uh, the last election. So we don't really know what the... Okay. It's, it's not like we actually stick our hand in the jelly bean jar and pull out the beans and come up with, oh, this many white ones, this many black ones, this many red ones. Right. We actually impose the number ahead of time uh, uh -huh. on the sample of this is how many Democrats, Republicans, and independents, and we're still using old numbers for that. So... I don't really know, but I, I would I would dare say from everything I've seen that um, that it looks like independents today are a larger group than either of the two parties. Indeed, which to me this this in my opinion is a very strong argument as to why we should have open primaries when you have that much of the population registered as independents or no party affiliation whatsoever. These folks are the ones that are going to be ultimately voting in the general election, not, not the confirmed party people that are just devoted to the party no matter what. So I feel like if we have open primaries, the candidate that gets picked through that process is more likely to win in a general election than less likely for this reason. Mm -hmm. But this two, argument to me, go ahead. Two observations. One is the biggest pushback we get uh, comes from African-Americans who actually have data points that they bring into the discussion to say that if you have an open primary, you dilute the impact of the black vote by this much. Because, really? Yeah. And, um, and frankly, I, uh, our, our response to that is, so you would rather keep the percentage of the vote you have at the level that it's at and lose general elections right. than open the process up and be able to win elections. Uh, I, 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 the, this is the Congressional Black Caucus making this argument, and I, I think mm -hmm. it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a really bad case to, to offer. Secondly, uh, there, there is a, a, a larger problem here, and that is that uh, Saint Augustine uh, wrote at one point that in the conflict between the world and the church, mm -hmm. he said it's always the church that's at fault. Um, mm. and, and the point here is that if Americans aren't joining the Democratic Party, then 
the problem's not with Americans. The problem is, what are we not offering them? Right. What are we failing at that is the result of the fact that we have lost uh, 1,100 state legislative seats, control of both houses of Congress, two-thirds of the governorships, and the White House? What are we doing wrong? But they don't, they almost seem constitutionally incapable of right. admitting that we have a problem. It's everybody else's problem. I mean, Hillary's book tour was, it's the Russians, it's Comey, right. it's Sanders, it's, we did nothing wrong at all. Well, I'm sorry, but in the conflict between the world and the church, it's the church's fault. In the conflict between the party and the public, it's the party's fault. We're doing something wrong. And we don't have the ability, apparently, to own up and say, we've done it wrong. When I go to sessions uh, that we do in the, uh, in the executive committee, they bring in our party pollster. And after the Hillary election, it was like, you know, people said that we, uh, we didn't win the Obama coalition. We did. We won the black vote. We won the Latino vote. We won the youth vote. We won the educated college women vote. We won all of our groups. We just didn't win enough of them. And so the solution for the next election was, he said, what we need to do is instead of throwing money after groups will never win, i.e. white working class voters, he said, instead of throwing money after those groups, we need to double down on our strategy of the past. And I, after you know, he got praised by five, six people, I raised my hand and I said, I'm sorry. That's that wrong. was really stupid. And not I agree. only was it stupid, but it is a... It is, it, it, we don't deserve to be a governing party if we take the approach of only going after our quote-unquote core votes and not seeing why have we failed to win these people who historically were always Democrats. Bernie I agree. Them. Why couldn't I agree. we come up with a candidate who could always? But they, didn't get, they don't get it at all, and they're still in the, in the document that got sent to us for a Unity Reform Commission. They keep talking about our core constituencies as if nobody else exists. And I frankly what? think that in a, if a party does not speak to everybody, it, it, it is as much a part of the problem um, as the other party is. And I, I think we really have to examine ourselves on how willing are we to take a, a, a cold, hard look in the mirror and say, here's what we've been doing wrong, here's what we've got to change, we've got to fix it. And and I, I just not that I don't think we're there yet. I agree. Uh, I I think the one thing that strikes me with that argument that's problematic, even the most problematic, is the fact that they're still they're saying we have the core constituencies. That's not the right way to look at. It. They lost. They literally lost a big chunk of their core consistency. That's the salient part of that situation. Mm -hmm. We had a candidate that didn't get people to come out to vote. I mean, if you look at, they, they try to make these arguments, uh, and they don't look at per capita, or they don't base it on anything within context, but if you really say you won all of Obama constituencies, I'm going to say you're wrong. You lost. Mm -hmm. You lost a big chunk of his constituency. Yes, perhaps you were able to get over this, you know, majority finish line, but that doesn't really tell the real story here. The real story is in the fact that you had registered Democrats that chose to go in and vote and didn't vote for president. They only voted down ballot. You had fewer Democrats showing up to vote. I mean, th 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 to me, they're looking at the wrong side of the argument. And the other part of that equation is white working class is, um, I, this, this is the one that really gets me when they make this argument against uh, Senator Sanders. 
who do they think is most heavily impacted by income inequality? It is not white men. So when they make this argument, it really infuriates me because the things that Senator, Senator Sanders is talking about do affect minority populations far more than they affect the white working class. And the idea that these things are uh, different domains is just is completely wrong. There's a reason that MLK, Martin Luther King, made poverty a part of his platform because he saw how, how his communities were affected by these things. So to me, these are just bankrupt arguments. They're based on antecedent bias. They don't want to see the truth. They are far too insular. And if they don't wake up, we're going to keep losing elections because the bottom line here is we are not a majority registered party. We have to form some sort of leftist coalition, whether it's with DSA, the Democratic Socialists, or the Green Party, or just disenfranchised independents that are left-leaning. These are, these are our audience. These are folks that uh, we should be appealing to with our progressive mm -hmm, values. Mm -hmm. And I don't understand why they don't see this. Mm. I, you I, know? I, I, <laughs> I wish I could I, tell you. I'm preaching to the choir, no doubt. So now if we come... Look, if we come through this process and these recommendations go to the Rules and Bylaw Committee and we don't see any real movement in the direction there needs to be movement in, what happens next? I have no idea. I really have no idea. And I find it frustrating. I, I really believe that we should have and, and probably still should push this to mm -hmm. a, a decisive confrontation before we right. get to the Rules and Bylaws Committee. I mean... There is okay. a crisis. We have to be willing to, um, to, to sort of demand a response now, right? Uh, or, um, or this is simply going to get, you know, I mean, this is a big meat grinder. This, 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 this political party crap. And uh, mm -hmm. at the end of the day, they'll take all the language. They'll take all the stuff. And, and figure that time's on their side and six months from now everybody will forget it and start thinking about the 2018 election. That's how it always works. Um, they, they're not going to make change unless forced to, and I don't think that there's uh, right now the, the consensus that we're going to force them to do it. I, uh, and I can't, there's not a fight I can have on my own. No, and I, you're not alone. Here's the thing. This is what bothers me about what the DNC is doing. They're really not listening to their voters at all. I would say in this particular moment in time, if they don't start listening, they're going to go by way of the Whigs. They are literally inflicting so much. Uh, well, it's not just the Democratic Party, Tina. It's 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 actually both parties. Oh, oh, oh no doubt. Time, I, I agree. We're at a point in no time where, where the, you know, I, I had joined this Unity Reform Commission hoping that we could salvage the party. Right. I'm not sure it's salvageable with three million dollars in the bank right now. And the Obama pack, the Hillary pack, and the Biden pack having more money, and right. and a bunch of other packs having more money, the 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 work of the party has become usurped by uh, by all these outside consultants, and yeah. their concept of membership, you know, it used to be a card carrying Democrat, um, right? Now you're an email receiving Democrat. I mean that that's there's no such thing as belonging to a party. There is, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you get communications, it's a one-way street. They talk at you. They don't talk to you. And when they send out a poll uh, and say, tell us what you think, no one ever looks at the results because they're oh not gosh. intending 
to get results. They're intending, rather, to use it as a device to, to, to suck money out of you. Parties have become huge money-making operations that pay for a handful of consultants to do work to design more fundraisers to continue feeding this cycle. And in the middle of it, you get candidates who end up also feeding the consultants. I mean, it's, it's no longer what it once was or what it existed in our minds as ideological groups of people committed to a certain set of principles and goals and structured around those goals in order to advance the cause and to promote and support individual members of the party. So when I was a kid growing up, you wanted a job, you went to the party boss, you wanted something uh, done by the city government that wasn't being done. You went to your ward captain, uh, you went to your precinct captain, uh, you worked for them, they worked for you. That no longer exists as a concept. Right. Right. So I, I, I'm not even sure what we're talking about right now. I don't disagree. We have a systemic problem, and, and God knows the GOP is a bigger mess. But I, of course, as a progressive, care about my side of the aisle. I don't disagree with any of that. And I think part of, of you know, the evidence we have for this is the way in which Senator Sanders and uh, OFA, Obama before him, were able to raise a lot of money directly grassroots from individuals without yeah. help of the DNC. And, yeah. you know, the DNC wants to cry poverty at this point. But again, this is a self-inflicted wound, in my opinion. They're not listening to their constituency right. at all. So people are, are instead saying, well, I'm not going to give you money. I'm going to give my candidate money directly through ACTLU or whatever else. Yeah. And they don't seem to be seeing, um, seeing how that's partially something that they created by their own action. You know, I was, when I came and saw you guys in, uh, valleys, I was struck by the first people that I saw. It was Berman and I can't remember the other guy. These are lobbyists. These are not, mm -hmm. that's not up for debate. I, they might want to call themselves consultants, but you've got a guy that you know, took money from private prisons that supported the Keystone XL, which are things that I don't agree with as a progressive. And I don't want to see these folks sitting in a leadership position. I sure as heck don't want to see them on a committee that's supposed to reform the leadership that's, ha that's um, engaging mm -hmm. in these types mm -hmm. of behaviors. And that was very disappointing. Uh, and I, I guess I'm still trying to have some sort of hope because I worry that if, if we get to this point where it's just not worth salvaging, what happens next? Because I don't, I don't know how you get around the electoral oh, college. Listen, and the I say it, but I'm going to be with this thing and fighting until no. they take me God out bless the pine box. Um, I, I'm with you. Huh? I'm with you. I'm God bless you. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not. I'm, I, 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 I sound like uh, you know, a little grumpy at times. Bad day with Jerusalem going on and getting the. Report. You're not grumpy. You're being honest and, and authentic, and but, uh, I appreciate that. I, I do that. think that it is. Uh, it's a situation where we're going to continue to fight it out, and uh, and I, I, you know, this is, maybe maybe we'll maybe we'll succeed. Maybe we'll uh, we'll make some progress this time. I just don't know. I just don't know. It's not as opt I'm not as optimistic as I was when this all started. I was a little more. Right. I thought that when when the Unity Reform Commission was started, that we had a, a shot at making change. And the longer it's dragged on, the more I'm convinced that this is the beginning of a fight. It's not the end of a fight. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. Look, the moneyed interest and the the power elite aren't going to go down without a fight. Right. I mean the. The one percent in this country currently control almost forty percent of the wealth, and they are so insulated in both parties and within the system itself 
the legis I mean, we have, you know, examples of the regulatory capture where you've got industry more or less sitting on every yeah. governmental board out there. I mean, so the, the, this stuff happened over, you know, a course of 40, 50 years now, and it's not going to disappear quickly. I'm just happy to see at this particular junction, I'm happy to see the American public finally realizing the truth of the matter and seeing it for what it is, it, it, ugly, worse and all. And I think the fact that we have such a large um, constituency of independence is, is sort of speaking to that. They're fed up with their parties. They're leaving the parties because they don't trust them. But how do we get around at the presidential level? I can understand how this works on a local level or a state level. We can elect these individuals without the framework of the DNC. But on a presidential level, it's, I think it's a different conversation because no matter if you ran an independent candidate, let's say Senator Sanders came out tomorrow and said, I'm going to run as an independent, how would he ever capture, even if he got the, the large majority of voters, how would he capture the Electoral College? How does this all play out on the bigger scheme of things from a, a technical framework? You, you, know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I, um, I don't know the answer. I, I mean, I think that the electoral map would have looked quite different with Bernie as a candidate. I don't think we would have lost Pennsylvania or Michigan. I don't think we would have lost uh, Wisconsin. Um, uh, his strength was in the industrial, uh, the formerly industrial, the basically the the the, the ethnic Midwest, and um, uh, and I I think it would have been a very different uh, very different political map and a very different election. I think Bernie Sanders would have won, but um, I'm. I agree I'm, with you. I don't know where we are now. I don't know where we're going in 2020. I'm, I'm hoping that uh, that Bernie can run again. I really am, but uh, but I just don't know. Uh, I right. think it's a really um, it's a, it's an almost uh, uh, confounding situation. I'm looking at people thinking about running who say they're going to run, and I look at them and say, "Did you learn nothing from the last election?" I, yeah. and, I, and I don't know what role the party will play or not play. I will bet you, I will bet you, though, that they will find a way to put their thumb on the scale like they did the last time. Mm -hmm. I'm just not confident that uh, we, we have made the kinds of reforms and or changes. I mean, the fact that Tom Perez purged people from the Executive right. Committee and Rules and Bylaws Committee uh, says right. to me they're in the same game. They're not giving Absolutely. it up. Power never oh, surrenders I... itself easily, um, and uh, and this is a clear situation where that's the that's the case. I agree. So, uh, final parting thoughts. I would love to hear from you if you uh, had any advice. We have a lot of young activists out there that are really excited about changing politics. What would your advice be to them as far as getting around all of these uh, problems that we're seeing? How do they affect? change? How do they uh, push for the reform that we want to see? What what action can they take uh, at the grassroots level to make that happen? Well, one of the things that we're doing with our revolution is encouraging people to run in their states for party posts so that we can take over as many state parties as possible. I think we would have had a very different situation in this Unity Reform Commission if we controlled 25 state Democratic parties with Sanders-type uh, party chairs and, and national committee people, we're up to 11, and we're we're you know and we're not even a year past the last election. 
Um, if we double it, it'll be a very different Democratic Party. Um, that's one. The other thing, of course, is always w working on progressive causes, which is sometimes the place where you win the more immediate victories. Uh, I mean, I think it's not, I don't mean immediate in the sense that it, it, it happens quickly or easily, but, you know, struggles that we've won over issues like the environment, uh, like um, access uh, to facilities for the disabled, uh, issues that we've won in local communities on public education or uh, the the environmental uh, victories that we've won. These are big, and they make a difference in politics. Uh, people have won BDS victories with major churches, with universities, uh, elevating the issue of Palestinian rights in ways that you know my generation thought it was impossible to do. So I think that there are real real chances to make changes on causes, on issues, and also to change the Democratic Party from the inside. And I encourage people to, to, you know, to, to get engaged and, and, and do it. Um, uh, you know, I started in this work um, about Middle East work 40 years ago, political work um, about 55 years ago, and I've been doing it ever since. And it's, uh, it's made life meaningful. Um, it's a life worth living when you feel, even if you didn't win all the things you wanted to win, if you look at what you've done and feel, I, I actually tried to make a difference, and in some cases I did. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, it, it's satisfying. You have definitely made a difference, and I am thankful for all of the work that you've put in. Uh, you have definitely shifted the conversation. I mean, I've seen it even in the last four years. I was uh, watching intently the Democratic platform hearings when yourself and Dr. Cornell West were fighting for these things and made very eloquent, uh, heartfelt arguments and brought tears to my eyes, really. I thought it was a beautiful thing. And thank you for that. And thank you for working with the uh, Reform Committee and doing all these things. I agree with you that it happens at the local level. I know here in District 34, we have absolutely infiltrated the Dem Party. Most of our delegates are uh, Bernie Sanders delegates now from the last um, caucus we had. So you're right. If we take over from the bottom up, then they will have to reckon with what we're saying. They will have no choice. So I think that's a very solid recommendation. Had, so all friend, of you youngins do it. I had a friend ahead, who ran sorry. the Israeli League for Human and Civil Rights. Israel Shahak was his name. And he used to tell the story of the rabbi who was leaving one town, going to another town. But it was getting late at night, and he was afraid of getting lost in the dark. So he saw a little boy playing stopped the little boy and said, I'm on my way from this town to that town. How do I get there? And the little boy pointed straight ahead. He said, there's the forest over here. You can go straight through the forest and the town's on the other side. Or he said, you can walk all the way around the forest and the town mm -hmm. will be on the other side. The rabbi <laughs> got impatient and said, "What's the? Wh wh why are you giving me two ways? He said, well, one is the short way, but it's the long way. The other way is the mm -hmm. long way, but it's the short way. The rabbi got upset with the boy slapped them, and then walked into the woods, figuring that was the way to go. He got lost. He came out the next morning at exactly the same spot, and the little boy was there, and he got angry with him, and he said, I got lost. I went through the woods, and I got lost. He said, I know. I told you. That was the short way. That's the long way. If you'd walked around the woods, you would have gotten there. It's the long way, but it was the only way to get there easily. And the fact is, politics is like that. 
It's the long way that's the short way. I mean, there is no shortcut to this. It's like, you know, yes, eight months ago, if I'd remembered that, I would have approached this Unity Reform Commission a lot differently. I guess I thought that brilliant arguments would win the day and it would be a shortcut to making all the changes. There's no shortcut. It's right. long, hard work, and it's a slog yeah. all the time. Sometimes you don't succeed, but you just feel good because you tried. And that's mm -hmm. where we are right now.